The following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. Well, today we are moving forward into our second week of Advent. And with that, we'll be looking at a different part of the big story, the grand narrative, as it's called, the big story of the Bible. And so just as a way of review from last week, we talked about creation and how that ties into not only Christmas, but our, our longing for Jesus to come, our celebration of Jesus coming and why that's such a big deal and what in the world does creation have to do with that. And we talked about this image of how God had created everything to be good, in fact, very good. And so the big takeaway from last week that we want to make sure we carry into this week is how good was it? I mean, how when God said he saw everything he'd made and it was very good, what does that mean to us? How are we to understand what God's determination of very good is. How, how are we to, to apply that to ourselves? So here's, here's a thought. I want you to all take just a moment and try to think in your own life, individually. I want you to try to pick out, if you can, now I know this is tough, try to pick out the very best day in your whole life that you can remember. If you, had to, if you had to pick a day, now I know that's, if, you're, if you're 12 years old, that may not be as much of a challenge because you've got less time to work with. But I mean, I'm, I'm 47, I'll be 48 next in February. I've got a, a good bit to, to think about here. But I want you to think about if you could pinpoint maybe even two or three days that you thought to yourself, this is the best day of my life. I mean, I'll try to zero in on it. Maybe it's the day you got married. Maybe it's the day your first child was born. Maybe it's the day you got saved and met Jesus. Maybe it's a combination of things. But I want you to try to zero in on what would you say is the very best day of your whole life? You got it? Now, whatever that day is, I want you to know God's very good is infinitely better than whatever your best day is. I mean, it's not even in the same zip code. God's version of very good is unimaginable to us. In our minds, on this earth, what we think is the best ever isn't even in the same conversation as what God says is good. 
So, so I want us to just think, before we move into this week's passage, as we reflect backward on Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and we think about all God created, He, he spoke everything into existence. There was nothing, and He created everything. And it was very good. When you get a picture in your mind, the best we can imagine what the Garden of Eden was like, what Adam and Eve's relationship was like, what their governing creation looked like, their time in the garden, their time with each other, their time doing what God told them to do, everything about that, whatever you think it is, multiply it by infinity, and it's that much better. We can't comprehend. That's what I'm trying to get across. We can't even comprehend in our minds how good it really was. It was that good. And I'll, I'll tell you that. The reason why I'm making a big deal about that is because it's really important to know how good the good was. Because if we don't, there's no way we can appreciate or understand how bad the fall became. It was terrible. It went from one extreme to the other. It went from the best imaginable scenario to the worst scenario. The fall was devastating. And that's why today's sermon is so difficult and yet so necessary because it doesn't seem like something so devastating to us and to humankind in, in general would be something that we want to talk about at Christmas because it might be hard to see the connection, but I promise you we will see the connection. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to show a short video about the fall. Then we're going to read through the text in Genesis 3, and then we're going to talk about four different areas about sin that we need to know about if we're going to appreciate the rest of the story. So let's watch this video. We had these two chapters of bliss, right? <laughs> we were able to enjoy two chapters of bliss. God creates heaven. He creates the universe. He creates mankind from the dust. But then when we get to chapter 3, we're introduced to this guy, this cat named the serpent. And he tempts Eve. And Adam and Eve both give in and they eat of the fruit that God told them not to eat from. And then what happens is sin enters the world. The harmony we had with God, there's a wedge put in between man and God, and it's called sin. Sin has separated us from God, and we are in dire need of rescue and restoration. And so when we had this peace and this, this blissfulness in the garden, uh, what happened is we had an identity crisis. Whereas we were created from the dust, now God says when he's handing down judgment that cursed is the ground. And so we now find our identity in the dust and not the God who created us from it. Romans 1 says it this way, that we begin to worship the created things rather than the creator God. And so now we have this transactional approach to life where we just want to look good. We want to be good. We want to make a lot of money. Not that those things are inherently bad in themselves, but now we've exalted this stuff above God because of sin. And so rather than honoring God who created us from the dust, we're going back to the dust to define us and how we work and, and our education. And so there's a problem. There's sin has entered the world, uh, but the good news is that it doesn't stop there. We're going to hear a lot of we're going to hear a lot of bad today. But take heart, the story is not over yet. 
Genesis chapter 3, let's read this text together and try to take it all in and then we're going to work through it bit by bit in the time we have here and uh, we'll see why this is so important uh, to understand at Christmas. Genesis chapter 3, here's what the Bible says in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head or crush you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Father, in Jesus' name I pray today your word will become clear to us as your spirit opens our hearts and minds to understand. And God, I pray above everything else that you will be glorified. I pray you will help me 
to speak clearly, that you would not allow me to say anything that would be confusing or to cause us not to understand what you want us to know and hear today and that you might give us the strength to be obedient to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a really, really tough passage of Scripture. This is commonly called the fall, the fall of man. Sin enters the world. We, we read last week, Genesis 1 and 2, the last thing that was said in Genesis 2.25 was that the man and his wife were not ashamed. And it's funny how quickly the tables will turn. So here's a road map for where I'd like to go here in the next little bit, trying to get through all this. There's a lot to say. We could spend a long time on here, and I'm going to try not to do that, but I am going to try to get everything out that needs to be heard today about this passage and how it relates to us at Christmas. So here's the four things that we're going to see about this passage, okay? The first thing we're going to see is the deceitful repulsiveness, the ugliness of sin. Then number two, we're going to look at the initial consequences of sin. Then we're going to see the explicit curses of sin. And finally, the long-term effects of sin. So it's a, a, a clear passage. It's going to take us through in an orderly way. But I want to first look at the deceitful repulsiveness of sin, verses 1 through 6. Now, look at those words. Listen to those words. Think about what they mean. Deceitful. What do you think of when you think of the word deceitful? Dishonest. Lying. You know, deception. How about repulsiveness? What, if something's repulsive, it's just you don't even want to look at it. It's ugly. It's terrible. That's what sin is in every way. So the story begins. Remember, it left off. They were not ashamed. And then the first verse of chapter 3, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. More crafty than in any other beast. That means he was a very uh, professional speaker when it comes to deception which is odd we talk about a serpent, but understand who the serpent is. The serpent represents our enemy, the devil. That's who's in play here, okay? So there's a, a, a plan that's been put into place, and the devil is trying to lead God's children astray. But I want you to, to note one, one quick detail in verse 1 before we move through this conversation. Do you see in Genesis 3-1 when it describes the serpent as being more crafty? Do you see how that sentence ends? The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Please don't miss that. You know, the devil may be a son of a gun and he may be difficult to deal with, but let me just tell you this. God made the devil. Before he rebelled, God made, that's a fallen angel, God made him. He's a created being, not a creator. So don't think, listen to me, don't think for a second that the devil is equal to God. It's not even close. Sometimes we see good versus evil, you know, uh, the force versus the dark side, you know, go to the movies, that's what the representation is. And sometimes we see God and the devil fighting it out like they're two heavyweights and who's going to win? And we read the Bible and we believe God wins. Well, guess what? The devil doesn't do anything unless God lets him do it. God is, God is in control of the devil. So don't think for a second 
that these are two equals that are, that are uh, facing off. This, God has no equal. God has no equal. So as much harm and difficulty as the devil can cause, he cannot and will not rival God and his power. So let's take heart in that from the very beginning of this passage. God had made this adversary. And so here's the conversation that ensues because this is deceitful, remember? It's ugly. The serpent questioned what God said. Questioned it. Did God really say that? That was the question, right? You see in the Bible, you look at the Scripture in the end of verse 1. He said to the woman, Has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now, is that what God said? No. Read your Bible. That's not what God said. He said they could eat from any tree except for one. But you see how the devil's twisting the word. Has God said you should not eat from any tree of the garden? So here's what's happening. This question smuggles in this assumption. Remember, the devil was created by God. You know, he, he fell, but he was created by God. But don't miss this. The question he asked smuggles in this assumption that we as created beings have the ability, even the right to stand in judgment of what God has said. You understand that? We don't have that right. And we don't have that ability. You know why? Because it's not our word. It's God's word. He's the creator. We, we have no standing. If this were to go to court, we do not have standing to even enter the courtroom and, and raise a question about what God has said. But that's the conversation. So the woman responds. She says, we can eat from any tree in the garden, but... We can't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. And then she adds this for good measure, which was not part of the word. And we can't touch it either. We've got to stay away. Not only can we not eat it, we can't touch it. And if we do, if we disobey, we'll die. Now, that sounds, that sounds pretty good, right? I mean, that, that sounds like a fair response, doesn't it? She did okay. But let's look underneath that. Let's imagine for a second what she should have said. Because if you think about what she actually said, you may think, well, that's okay. That's not too bad. She did all right, given the circumstances. But what should she have said? Remember who she was. Only two human beings on the planet at that point, and all of creation, and God. Perfect harmony, perfect peace, perfect everything. So maybe I, I'm thinking like this. I, I read this in, a, in one of my uh, books I wanted to share. What if she had said something like this when the devil says, did God really say, are you not supposed to eat from any tree? What if she said this? Are you insane? God knows exactly what he's doing. He made everything, including me and my husband. We're living in paradise, enjoying perfect harmony with God and with each other and with all creation. How could I possibly question God's wisdom and love. I trust him absolutely. You want me to doubt the purity of his motives and character? How idiotic is that? And besides, what possible good could come from a creature defying his creator and sovereign king? Now that would have been a really good answer. To look at the serpent and say, you must be out of your mind. Look around. Look where we are. We're in the Garden of Eden. We're, we're in, we're in uh, utopia. 
it couldn't be any better. And, and you're going to ask me to doubt my creator because of one tree? I got millions of trees. I don't need that tree. And plus, God said not to touch it. It must not be anything I need, right? That would have been a good answer. That's not what she said. It's not at all what she said. And then we see the serpent is a liar. See, what the serpent says is partly true but totally false, if that makes sense. He tells the woman, oh, you're not going to die. Your eyes are going to be open. And then you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. So, see, God's holding out on you. That's what's really going on. But here's the false part. She's not going to become like God. Oh, her eyes will be opened all right. But she's not going to become like God. She's going to become evil and rebellious and sinful. This is the crucial temptation of the whole story. And we've touched on it in past weeks or months when we've mentioned this story. This is the temptation that was offered to Eve. Eve, you're not going to just know good and evil. You're going to get to decide what's good and what's evil. You're not going to become like God. You're going to become your own God. You're going to be in charge. You don't need this other God. Yeah, forget the fact he created everything, and including you. No, you're going to get to decide for yourself. You're going to be able to look at God in the face and say, you know what? I know you're telling me this is good and this is evil, but I'll, I'll decide that for myself, okay? You just don't worry about that. I'll do that for myself because I have the knowledge I need. That was the crucial temptation. So the woman gives in to temptation and to pride. She sees the threefold uh, temptation that the fruit was good for food, a delight to the eyes, desirable to make one wise. So she ate. And then she gave some to her husband, who, by the way, was standing right there the whole time. And... He was basically uh, spineless, giving up his authority, giving up his leadership, giving up everything he was supposed to be doing, not paying attention. He was just standing there silent. So the woman ate. She gave to her husband who was with her. He ate. They both sinned greatly. That's the deceitful repulsiveness of sin it was a terrible day everything changed at that moment so look at number two the initial consequences verse 7 down to verse 13 the first thing that the bible says after they ate then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin covering so the first thing that happened was genesis 2:25 was completely reversed they went from unashamed to immediately ashamed. Nothing's changed about them except their disobedience. But they went from unashamed to completely ashamed. A broken relationship with God, a broken relationship between man and woman. Their eyes were open. They were immediately ashamed. They actually tried to hide themselves from God when they heard him in the garden. Now, another key point here, if you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. Look at verse 9. 
the Lord God called to whom? He called to the man. Who was the serpent talking with again? The woman. Where was the man this whole time? Standing there, being a wimp. Sorry, can't say amen, you got to say ouch. He was standing there not doing his job is what he was doing. He was doing nothing. Who did, the God, who did God come looking for? The man. You know why? Because the man was accountable. Because he was the responsible party who had been given the instruction, who was supposed to be doing his job and didn't. Didn't do his job. So the God of creation comes looking for the man and says, where are you? Of course, he knows where he is. But what does the man respond? He was afraid because he was naked, so he hid himself. So God's got him now. Oh, really? Who told you that? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree I told you not to eat from? Of course, these rhetorical questions, he knows the answer. And here we have enter the greatest phenomenon that continues to live on in our world day after day, blame shifting. What's the first thing the man says? Well, that woman, it's all her fault, and, and just the subtle detail there that, you're, that you don't need to miss, Adam didn't just blame his wife. He blamed God himself. You want to see the height of sinful arrogance, that woman, didn't just say that woman, he said, that woman you gave me. That puts the blame in Adam's freshly sin-converted mind and heart on God's shoulders. He just accused God of doing something wrong. So picture that. That woman you gave me, she gave it to me. It's her fault. So then God goes to the woman. What have you done? What does the woman do? Well, that serpent, too crafty for me, he deceived me and I ate it. Then God goes to the serpent. And that initial consequence there, that blame shifting, here's what I want you to see about that. That's the initial consequence. The shame, the guilt, the hiding from God. What, what do we do, y'all? What do we do? The first, first thing we do when we do something wrong, when we've sinned against God, when we are guilty and feeling conviction, where should we run? We should run to the throne of God's grace and beg for forgiveness, right? We should run to God. We should run to the church when we have a problem. What do we do? We, we run and hide. We don't want to be around any of our Christian friends. We don't want to be around the church. We don't want to be around God. We go and hide because we're guilty every single time. And then one of the things that commonly occurs in the wake of defying God is this. We deny we have any responsibility for what happened. Everything we do that's wrong is somebody else's fault. Hey, if you haven't done it, raise your hand. That's who we are. That's the, that is the consequence of sin. Oh, it's not my fault. I'm a victim. I don't bear any responsibility for all that I did. Now understand, 
people do bad things to other people. And, and, and we've all probably been victimized for real in, in some shape, form, or fashion. But when it comes to our sin, the first thing we do is, oh, that's not my fault. It's not my fault. Somebody else's fault. You know, at the beginning of the 20th century, but in the early 1900s, the uh, editors at the London Times newspaper sent out some uh, feelers to some notable writers, and they asked them to answer this question. What's wrong with the world? There's one famous English writer named G.K. Chesterton. You know what he said? He, re he sent in his reply. Here's, here's what it said. Dear sirs, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? I am. I am. It doesn't matter what anybody else has done. I'm the problem. That was rare that he would accept responsibility for who he was. Something that many of us still struggle to do. But those were just initial consequences. In verse 14, God moves into specific, explicit pronouncement of curses. And he goes very orderly, step by step. He first goes to the serpent. So this is number three, the explicit curse of sin. God pronounces the curse on the serpent. So he first goes to the, the serpent and says, because you've done this, you're cursed more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. You're going to go on your belly. You're going to eat dust. And then look at what is said about the relationship now between the serpent and the woman. Enmity between you and the woman but, but look, between your seed and her seed. So this is a generational problem. And what's going to happen eventually is the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent and the, and the seed of the serpent is going to bruise the heel. Satan's going to bruise Jesus, but Jesus is going to crush Satan. If you've ever seen the movie The Passion of the Christ in the opening scene, there's a beautiful representation of what that might look like. Jesus is praying in the garden and a snake is slithering through as he prays. And you can tell the struggles going on and then all of a sudden Jesus stands up and just slams his heel on the head of the snake. Crushes it. That's what's going to happen. But then God moves to the woman. God pronounces the curse on the woman of painful childbirth. Can I get a witness? Painful childbirth. So what was designed to be a beautiful blessing and a chief responsibility of the creative order now turns into this laborious burden filled with pain and difficulty. It was never meant to be that way. Did you realize that? It was never meant to be that way. Also, the husband-wife relationship is now going to be turned completely upside down. And this is something, this is one part of this scripture that you, I really need y'all to to listen, because when, when I've read this and studied this, this really kind of opened my eyes to something I didn't fully understand. I kind of sensed it, but I didn't, I didn't really understand it. This is a key part of how we see sin filtered down through all of our generations since the garden. The Bible says right here, in, in, in God's curse on the woman, he says, uh, after about childbirth, then, then he says, look at the end of verse 16. This is so important. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, a long time has gone by. I didn't fully really understand what that was saying until this week. 
I mean, I could sense, I kind of knew, kind of thought, I knew. But let me, just, let me just explain this particular scripture because the, the Hebrew words that are used in that verse are also used in the very next chapter in the story of Cain and Abel. In Genesis 4-7, when Cain has brought an offering that is not pleasing to God, the Lord asked Cain, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? Why are your face looking so sad? And verse 7, it says, If you do well, won't your countenance be lifted up? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Those two words, your desire is for you, but you must master it. Same exact Hebrew words that are used in relationship to the woman in Genesis 3. And here's what that means. You know what a result of sin is? In every marriage, the woman is going to be compelled to rule over her husband. In every marriage. There's going to be something in, in a woman's heart and soul that wants them to take control or manipulate or, or, or be in charge over their husband. Now, before you throw anything at me, I, I'm just delivering the mail. I didn't write it. You know, what, you know what the sin on the man's side of that is? Instead of loving, sacrificial servant leadership, the man is going to be compelled to rule harshly with brutal force over his wife. That's the re listen, that's the result of sin. And I know, I, I, listen, I got a string of jokes in my head right now that I could tell and, and make light of this. But I want you to know, when you understand what the Bible says, this is no laughing matter. Because it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Picture this television show if you've never seen it. It's called Everybody Loves Raymond. You know why that show is hilarious? Because two main characters, Raymond and his wife, Deborah. What's funny about that? Deborah is presented as the intelligent, logical, knows everything, got everything under control, can do anything. Raymond, the husband, is presented as a moron. Complete idiot, can't tie his shoes without help. And the interplay between those two characters is hilarious. But you know why? Why are things funny on TV? Because people identify with them. Why do people identify with that scenario? Because it's straight from the pits of hell. That's sin. That, that's the effect of sin. That's a natural desire in, in that relationship. That's not how it's supposed to be. You read Ephesians chapter 5. You know what Jesus says through Apostle Paul about marriage? Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. You know what? You know what he says? To, he spends three verses on women and nine verses on men. You know why? Because men need help. Here, you know, here's what he says to the men. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. You know how that looked? Like this. It looked like dying on a cross. 
You want to know how to love your wife? Men, be willing to die for her in every way, at any time, under any circumstance. Love, serve, lead. That's how you love your wife. And I know that because I know how short I follow that. That's the ideal. That's, that's what God says about marriage. He doesn't say, women, rule over those stupid men. And men, if you don't like what she says, just beat her a couple times. It'll be okay. But what do we see in our world? If I'm lying, I'm dying. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And it's straight from the Bible. That's what is going on in our world. And it's a direct result of sin. It's just what happens. It's not right. It's what happens. It's not the biblical picture of what marriage is supposed to be. So finally, the curse on the man. You've listened to your, the voice of your wife. The whole created order is now not working properly. The work I designed for you to do with joy is now going to be an unbearable burden. Why? You know, there was a song on the radio back in the 80s. Uh, by, it's called Everybody's Working for the Weekend. You remember that song? It's a great song. You know why that's true? Because very rarely now is work a joy. Work is a burden. Work is a necessary evil. Work is something, well, i got to work because i got to provide, but I sure don't want to. Man, if I could just be independently wealthy, I'd never work another day because work is a pain in my neck. You know why? Because of sin. Work was never intended to be a burden. It was intended to be a great joy because in it you were serving God and being obedient to his plan and glorifying him and existing in that perfect peace and harmony he had established. But because of sin, now everything about the created order has gone askew because of sin. Nothing is working like it was designed to work. You see where this is going? Let's talk about number four real quick, the long-term effects. We're almost done. Eve is the mother of all living. This is verses 20 to 24, number four, last, last piece. Eve is the mother of all living. That's not a coincidence because sin's curse is genetic. We are all born sinners. Ever since that day, everyone who has ever lived is born a sinner. Born a sinner. God made animal skin coverings for them. You see that at the end of this passage. This is verse 21. One thing don't miss about that. What did it require for God to clothe them with the skin of animals? It required death. The shedding of blood. You know what that is? Verse 21. It's a constant reminder and a painful, ominous foreshadowing that this, this rebellion of sin against God is one day going to require the ultimate sacrifice of the Lamb of God. So as Adam and Eve stroll outside the garden now with their brand new clothes, the skins of animals that God had to kill in order to clothe them, did you know that God had to sacrifice His own Son in order to clothe us with His righteousness? 
See, when you get saved, you get some new clothes too. You put on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But it didn't come at no cost. So, as you move through this chapter, and, and, and I, I struggled with how this was all going to work out, especially when we see the curses of sin and we talk about marriage and husbands and wives and how their roles are all flipped upside down and how women are trying to do the man's job and men are trying to rebel against that and be brutal and harsh and not what they're supposed to be. And you see that, and some of that, that probably hits really close to home for some of you, maybe too close to home, and it might hurt your feelings when you think about how all that looks. And I, I understand that. But we cannot ignore what the Bible says because it affects how we see life and how we see Christmas. And believe it or not, all of this affects our view of this tree and what we're celebrating when we see the good that it was and the terrible, terrible ugliness of what it became because of sin, here's the question we have to answer. How exactly does Genesis 3 fit into this big story of the Bible and into the personal stories of our lives? Three conclusions are important for us to see. First of all, Genesis 3 describes a willful rebellion. Nobody held a gun to Eve's head partly because no such thing back then. No one coerced her. She was tempted to sin. She gave in. Willful rebellion. The man was right there, could have ended it at any time, just stomped that snake into oblivion, and he didn't do it. He didn't do his job. Okay? Willful rebellion. Secondly, Genesis 3 shows evil primarily in vertical terms. Now, does that not mean that... Sin is committed by us against others, by others against us. Of course, that, that still happens. But I want you to see that the vertical relationship here is the primary sense of this evil. In other words, who's most offended here? God. God is. Our sin always, regardless of who else it hurts, and it usually hurts many people, sin hurts people, but primarily Sin is first and foremost against God. And we can't forget that. That's the most offended person in this chapter is God. Idolatry, the desire to be our own God, that's the supreme evil. And third and finally, Genesis 3 reveals humanity's deepest and most profound need. And that, folks, is the connection to Christmas. What is our deepest and most profound need? Every single one of us, doesn't matter who we are, where we've been, what we're doing, how old we are, our deepest and most profound need. We need to be reconciled to God. We are separated from God by our sin and we need to be brought back into a good relationship with God. That's the biggest need we have. And D.A. Carson writes it this way. He says, you can't make sense of the Bible until you come to agreement with what the Bible says our problem is. And if you don't see the Bible's analysis of the problem, you can't come to grips with the Bible's analysis of the solution. See, the ultimate problem is our alienation from God. And what we must have is reconciliation back to God or else we have 
nothing. So all this elaborate details about Genesis 3 and about the sin and the fall of mankind and all the terrible details that are in that story. We were up here and it was so very good and then the serpent came in and it became so very bad and it seems like there's no hope. And you wonder, all this, how can this possibly be preparing us for what we're celebrating this month? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because at the end of chapter 3, and going in through the rest of the Old Testament, all of humanity, all of humanity is crying out, we need a Savior. And God just whispers, Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.